Water is usually seen as a solvent, the background against which the reactions of life play out. But evidence points to something far more beautiful and strange. Sometimes, water can form nearly invisible, orderly structures at cellular surfaces. Structures that are strong enough to govern biological behaviors, yet are always on the verge of falling into chaos and allowing something new to grow. This biphasic process of stability and renewal can be seen as a metaphor for larger patterns in nature, and even in humans, where social interfaces shape culture in unseen ways. When we talk about biology, we often talk about water as a universal solvent, the hydrogen-bonded backdrop against which the more vital reactions of life play out. Without water, life on Earth couldn't have blossomed, and billions of years later, none can live without it. But it still seems to take a backseat to other, more exciting molecules, proteins, lipids, DNA. But you humans are 65% water by weight, 98% by molecular count. So is it really reasonable to presume that this little molecule plays such a milquetoast role inside of your cells? One can make a case for a much more active role for water in biology, but not in the form of a disordered liquid, as an emergent structure that's a consequence of nearby surfaces. As we'll see in this video, this sort of ordered water plays two roles in biology. On one hand, it allows organisms to perform astounding feats of strength, and on the other, it stabilizes the chaotic, crowded world of the cell. This exploration will take us down, down, down to the molecular limit of what humans and their machines can't even see, and will demonstrate how, under the right conditions, small shifts in chemistry and pressure can lead to sweeping changes, and how the same principles that govern the behavior of water play out across the whole of civilization. Chapter 1. Bordered Water Blood, tears, saliva, urine, bile, lymph, these all flow like rivers through the body and generally lead people to think of biological water as existing in a predominantly liquid form. The standard drawing of a cell in every entry-level biology textbook, where a blobby membrane surrounds a soup of bobbing organelles, further perpetuates the idea that cells, like veins, must be full of liquid. However, various experimental findings tell a more complicated story. As far back as the 1970s, researchers doing electrophysiology recordings found that piercing a cell's membrane with an electrode didn't cause its insides to come pouring out. Neither did removing whole chunks of its membrane, nor did cutting the cells in half. In fact, as long as you left the nucleus and the centrioles alone, a sliced up cell could produce two perfectly normal daughter cells. That's sort of like saying if you cut a human in half in just the right way, it can still reproduce, which is true but counterintuitive. Such a finding certainly suggests that humans aren't just big, ape-shaped bags of water, and it seems to say that cells aren't either. So where's all the water if it isn't just floating around and hydrating? Visualizing this is difficult, since a water molecule is about a thousand times smaller than the wavelength of visible light. Which is why it helps to turn to the work of people like David Goodsell, artist and professor at Scripps Institute. His paintings of intracellular landscapes show a crowded profusion of proteins and membranes, with only enough space for a finite number of water molecules in the gaps. With so few waters in the presence of so many surfaces, there can be no such thing as flow, since that depends on an abundance of slippery and transient water-to-water -water hydrogen bonds. 
Instead, the aquatic landscape of the cell is dominated by much stickier interactions between H2O molecules and membranes, proteins, even DNA itself. But not directly. This is the sort of magical thing about ordered water. The surface in question only interacts directly with the first hydration layer, which forms an orderly cloak on the surface. And this forces the next layer of waters to organize, which then forces the next layer to organize, and then the next layer, and so on. And before you know it, all the available waters are organized in a radial pattern around the surfaces in the cell. This is probably why cutting a cell doesn't cause its contents to leak out. The water at the surfaces holds sway so strongly that opening up the cell doesn't really have much of an effect. The emergent force of all of this interfacial water allows it to actually bear colossal loads and to stabilize the behavior of the cell, but also at just the right moment to let everything loose. The implications of this peculiar paradigm are twofold. The first is that water's role in the cell might be as much about structural reinforcement as it is about dissolution. But it also means that as the water changes, so does everything else. And just as individual waters are organized by surfaces and transient load-bearing structures, so humans are structured by social interfaces like markets, ideologies, institutions, substances, and generation. Chapter 2. The Shape of Water now that we've explained how living creatures are full of this highly organized interfacial water, and before we make clearer the connections between physical nature and social tendencies, it would behoove us to understand what all this order actually does. And for that, we turn to seats, where the ability of ordered water to do work plays a central reproductive role. Consider the dandelion akine. Each seed is attached to a thin vertical beak, which terminates in a feathery pappus. The joint between these two structures, the pulvinus, contains a small amount of water-responsive material that uses structured water to open and close the pappus in response to changes in environmental humidity. On a hot, dry day, the pulvinus shrinks, which allows the feathers of the pappus to unfurl and catch the wind. Landing the seeds runs in reverse. An increase in humidity, which suggests a fruitful place to grow, causes water to rush into the pulvinus. As it swells, it furls the parasol's top, and the akine quickly runs aground. Pine trees, whose seeds are nearly 14,000 times heavier than those of the dandelion, also use water for seed dispersal. But their strategy is a little different. Here, hygroscopic elements are in the cones, not in the seeds themselves. When it rains, the scales absorb water and swell closed. When the weather clears, the innovation becomes apparent. Each scale contains two layers, and the arrangement of the water in the top layer causes it to shorten as it dries, while the bottom one remains long. This opens up the cone and allows the wind to disperse the seed inside. But not all work is done by water for the sake of being caught in the wind. In geranium plants, seed dispersal is driven directly by an evaporation-powered spring. Each seed matures at the end of a slender rostrum, which evaporation slowly twists into a tighter and tighter coil. At some critical point, the rostrum snaps and the recoil propels the seed away. When it lands, the remnant of the coil still responds to water, and as the humidity changes, it slowly rotates back and forth to drive the seed deeper and deeper into the earth. In all these examples, the movement of tightly organized water through specialized structures causes large mechanical movements that accomplish some function. But returning to the scale of the cell, we find that the shape taken by water can go even further. In some cases, it holds the line between awakening and slumber. Like in those microbes that can sense when they're about to run out of resources, and as a consequence of a bunch of genetic programs that cause asymmetric reproduction, turn themselves into a spore, which is ready for 
indefinite hibernation. No one quite knows how long a spore can stay asleep. A few brave researchers have suggested 250 million years, others 25 million, and there's the conservative estimate of 70 years. It's been shown that they can survive the hard vacuum of space for at least six years, and convincing proposals about the nature of spores structured water have suggested that number could be much larger. These little creatures are held in astonishingly stable, yet reversible stasis because the water inside their cores has become so ordered that it's like time and motion have completely stopped. The water in their outer shells is even more interesting because it has to have a dynamic structure, one that constantly changes in response to the environment without accidentally reawakening the spores when conditions aren't ideal. During hibernation, the water molecules cling so tightly to the proteins of the outer shell that it's as if they're frozen at room temperature. But if a molecule that outcompetes the interaction between the shell and water comes along, the stable structure is broken and the spore hatches into a new bacterium. Like all the previous examples, the spore illustrates the vital role of structured water in nature and points out how this incredibly abundant molecule, so often considered to be formless and passive, can perform great feats of strength when it's ordered at a surface. Having laid out the evidence for the astounding abilities of interfacial water, we can now move on to the titular question. How is it that humans are like water? Chapter 3. Civilization as the Human Interface Okay, this is the nerd philosophy poetry portion of the program, where we put all this together into a version of the world that tries to integrate physics, biology, and human behavior. We're happy to field all the questions, comments, and irate complaints wherever you can find us. Seat backs and tray tables in the upright and locked position, folks. To really explain the parallel between humans and waters, we have to imagine a model where the individual is analogous to a single molecule of H2O and social interfaces, things like markets, religions, institutions, substances, and reproduction, order and instruct human behavior the way that surfaces inside the cell order and instruct the behavior of water. Parallels between the two systems are most obvious inside of hydrated cells, where water can be found in two states, a disordered bulk state and a highly structured hexagonal configuration at the surface of hydrophilic proteins and lipid membranes. This coordinated form of water that forms at boundaries stabilizes everything it touches, but it is by no means permanent. A periodic return to bulk conditions accomplishes physical transitions like shape change, chemical reactions, or motion. When people speak of the system, they're talking about the metaphorical surfaces of society. Markets, ideologies, institutions, even family and consumption that are the foundational interfaces for human behavior. When they speak of the system being broken, they usually mean that a destructive resonance has arisen at these social surfaces where the humans associated with them have become ordered in a way that perpetuates destruction. Periodically, these social structures collapse and humans revert temporarily to a bulk phase, which is an interregnum between the dominance of an old behavioral structure and the rise of a new one. It is the chaotic window of paradigm shifts in trade, governance, knowledge, eros, and appetites. Consider the metaphorical surface of the market, which shapes trade. When the market is in a confirmation that prizes efficiency and profits, this predominantly orders trade into the form of large corporations. It also produces conditions where there are few, if any, alternatives available, since the corporate structure rewards and reinforces a market that prizes efficiency above all else. In theory, the highly structured confirmation of trade could shift into a more relaxed state if markets prioritize different parameters, or if a less centralized form of business could be demonstrated as equally efficient. 
Another example is ideology, which is the social interface that structures tribalism and governance. In the highly ordered condition, human rule tends toward authoritarianism, which history has shown coordinates human behavior to atrocious ends. Those who are directly involved in the centralized dispersion of dogma would be most similar to the crystalline layer of water directly at the surface. And those whose lives are irreparably altered by the iron fist of a unified creed are other layers that fall into place. When authority structures dissipate, there may be momentary chaos, often called revolution, before governance settles into a new structure. The same parallel could be drawn for consumption, the surface that organizes the human appetite. In the highly organized condition, the goods being consumed to sate hunger have the paradoxical effect of simultaneously creating more hunger. This establishes a condition where consumed goods and experiences, alcohol, opiates, shopping, nicotine, sugar, or even television bias hunger towards addiction, where no amount of ingestion is capable of quenching the urge in question. Here, the return to the bulk state requires rediscovering satiety, both on an individual and a social level. The list goes on and on. Reproduction structures romance, churches structure knowledge, the academy structures epistemology, language structures thought, the internet structures communication, and on and on. The point is that humans are like water. And just as the incredibly stable structured waters that keep a spore asleep may be destabilized by the presence of a detergent, the organization of human civilization is dependent on stable conditions. Although the current interfaces that give structure to society appear stable on the order of years and lifetimes, an unexpected state change could suddenly remove these strictures. Universal basic income could challenge the nature of trade, just like birth control changed the paradigm of reproduction, the farm-to-table movement got people eating organic food, and the universities set humans on a quest for knowledge. So if you ever despair in thinking that these human institutions that seem to squeeze you from all sides have become far too powerful, simply remember that it is possible for small changes to some and create massive shifts. Make sure to check out our conversation with University of Washington professor Dr. Jerry Pollack all about the structured water and weathering paper cuts at the thinned edge of scientific inquiry. Come back next time for an exploration for what it means to flourish in the post-growth era. Subscribe for weekly movies and conversations and join our mailing list so we can stay in touch and build a better forum for discussing these questions that keep us up at night. For now, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. See you next week, humans. Bye. Bye. You know, most people think, well, gee, water is such a simple molecule and it's all over and scientists have been studying it for years and years. Everything about water that could be known must already be known. But in fact, water does so much. It, it participates uh, in virtually everything that goes on in every one of your cells. If you line up all the molecules in the cell and you start counting, you know, one, two, three, more than 99 out of 100 would be water molecules. The reason being that they're so small and to make up that two-thirds volume, you need a lot of water molecules. So. You know, to state, as in biology is often stated, that the water molecules merely are background carriers. They don't do anything. They just sit there. It's a kind of, you know, intellectual arrogance. There's no junk in the body. Everything is there for a purpose.
penetrating toward the truth is exciting for almost everybody. Uh, I think we all have that desire. And sometimes, sometimes we're exposed to science and, uh, and, and the science seems so elusive because it seems so complicated. But, uh, you know, I guess I've developed some philosophy over time. I've been doing science for more than 50 years. And I guess a half century is, is enough to uh, have developed a philosophy. And my philosophy is science is really simple and anyone can understand it, hmm. even me. Uh, and, <laughs> and if it looks complicated, or if it seems complicated, it, it, it might be, and there's a good chance that it's not correct. Hmm. I think there, um, excuse my nose for a moment. Of course. Um, I think there are, are a lot of uh, concepts that have made uh, their way to the textbooks that, uh, that may actually be uh, not true. And that's a pretty uh, bold, that's a bold place to start from. Well, why not? <laughs> why, not <laughs> why not be bold? I, I guess what I preface my, I preface my remarks uh, with the, the, uh, the idea that I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, well, it seems I, like I, science necessarily has to break down what came before in order to move forward. Well, actually, yeah, that's that's a really good point, right? Because if you are developing an understanding of something, let's make sure we have the same definition of science. For us, it's mechanism, explanation how a phenomenon happens. Exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. You can observe something in nature, and the question is, you know, what what... What's going on here? And, um, and we need to find out. And unfortunately, uh, there, there are foundations that, uh, that have been developed. And, you know, if you try to build a, uh, an edifice on a weak foundation, it doesn't hold up. And this, this has been the issue. There are many weak foundations out there. Um, and and if you try to build on it, everything becomes complicated. You need struts and, and um, band-aids to cover the gaping wounds and, and ropes to hold it uh, in, in place. And it's not beautiful. Why well, is it so hard to work on the foundations themselves? <laughs> you guys, you guys are just full of insights uh, <laughs> and, and great questions. Uh, so I love it. Yeah, the reason it's hard is the system uh, of doing science. Hmm. So what do I mean by that? I mean, for, for most science is done by academics. And, uh, and academics work in institutions. And like myself, I'm uh, in, at the University of Washington. And in order to run a laboratory to do research, you need money. So I'll give you an example. As uh, as an academic, um, suppose I have an idea. Okay, I, and my favorite example is, my idea is that the earth is round. And everybody knows that it's flat because 
all you need to do is look out there and, you know, you can see it looks flat. And um, if you happen to be fortunate enough to be near a body of water, you look out, it looks flat. You know, no bumps, nothing, just absolutely flat. But uh, but you have the idea that, uh, well, maybe the, the Earth is round. And the, the reason you have the idea, um, despite what everybody thinks, is you've seen satellite photos, right? And hey, it looks curved. And, mm. uh, and in some cases, it looks like a sphere. And, and you think... My, by golly, you know, I think the Earth is round, despite the fact that everybody thinks that the Earth is flat. And you've even gone one step further. You've taken a flight. You've uh, left from wherever you reside. Um, in my case, Seattle, let's say. You come to Seattle, you take a flight west, and you land in Honolulu. And then you go on for farther west, and you land in Tokyo, and you go farther west, um, and and you keep going, and uh, uh, and you wind up where you started back back mm. in Seattle again. Keep going, and you're very conscientious. So you look out the window, and you think, you know, with some degree of cleverness, that you know, if the Earth is flat, and you're able to return to where you where you started um <coughs> the earth the earth must be a cube mm. there must be some edges mm. right <laughs> well yeah and you look out the window and you're extremely conscientious um you even don't stop for meals because because you really want to look out and see and you never see the edge of the earth you never see those so you've got two pieces of information now you've got your personal evidence that you look Look for the edges, and you can't find them. <coughs> and the satellite photos seem to show it's a sphere. So you're thinking, this is really important stuff, you know? And, um, and you want to study the shape of the Earth. So what do you do? You go to one of the funding institutions, and, and, um, and you say, hey, I have some, you know, what's called preliminary evidence those two pieces of evidence that we're, we're, we're discussing. And um, please, could you give me some more money? Because I want to set up a laboratory to investigate the shape of the earth. If it's, if it's really flat, as you guys think, well, you know, that's okay. But, but I think it might not be flat. It might be round. And if it's round, it impacts so much of our thinking that I want to study it. So please give me some money because I can't do anything without a little bit of money. Um, so it goes to the gatekeeper and the gatekeeper sees uh, an application from the two of you, uh, perhaps. Uh, and oh, this looks pretty radical, pretty, pretty important. And um, they want to make sure the gatekeeper wants to make sure that it gets proper review because Gatekeeper doesn't know you guys, and uh, you know, are are you charlatans or are you for real? So they recruit the very best people in the field of the shape of the earth to review your application for money. So who are these people? Well, these people are the experts uh, in flat earth theory, 
And the question is, well, you know, how is your application for money going to be received by these reviewers? In Not theory. Very well. Well, in yeah. theory, it, this, is, this is something that we talk about a lot, which is the responsibility of the individuals within a system to make it functional. Because if the system was filled with people who looked at their theories as being one possibility, something that needed to be re-examined periodically, then they'd look at that grant application and they'd be like, well, yeah, let's look, maybe we're wrong. Uh, well, I'm with you on that, but yeah, try to find such people. You guys would fit into that category perfectly, <laughs> but most, most people, you know, it's human nature and, uh, and we want to protect ourselves. And so if somebody came to challenge my ideas, my theories, I'd hope that I would be open to it. But, but you know, we're human beings and we want to uh, protect our turf, so to speak. And if somebody challenges my ideas, um, you know, one side of me says, well, of course, we're looking for truth and, and, and challenge is completely appropriate and necessary. The other part of me says, oh, boy, my career, you know, I made my career on XYZ and somebody is challenging the very foundation of XYZ. And therefore, mm. if they're right, I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to have a little difficulty in the future getting money uh, for, for my scientific endeavors. Oh, and you'll uh, also look bad because you'll have been pushing a bad theory all along, right? Yes and no, uh, because I've got a lot of colleagues. Uh, if I'm a flat earth person, yeah. you know, uh, most of my friends are also flat earth people. <laughs> and they're thrilled if, if, if my vote is to reject this application. Uh, they're very happy about it. On the other hand, you know, if, I, if I'm sitting around the table and we're doing the review and I say, well, wait a second, you know, all of us are flat earth people, but... You know, maybe there's some, some truth to this. And, and if so, I'm really vulnerable because all the colleagues sitting around the table are going to say, well, you know, then how do you explain X and how do you explain Y? And it puts me on the spot. Mm. And, and it could be really embarrassing if I can't answer their questions uh, objectively. So the easiest for me is to say, oh, well, you know, this application is pretty interesting, but gee, I wish they would only have provided or told us the, uh, the statistical analysis that they're going to use to explain their data. Tell them to come back next year with another application, et cetera. So, Has this happened so to you? you? Sorry. Has this happened to you? Um, yeah, it's, it's happened. But, Probably happens uh, to everybody to some extent. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it does, uh, because, you know, there are so many applications and not enough money, so you have to choose the ones that are the best. Well, I mean, time. not about the grants applications specifically, but about the sort of the dichotomy of going against consensus. Like, What about the dichotomy? I'm sorry, what's your question? I, I, didn't, I missed it. Have you been in that position where you're the person coming around and suggesting that maybe the earth is round and yeah, everyone that's, else? Essentially, that's all we do <laughs> in our laboratory is exactly that because, well, because we're interested in finding truth. And um, as you pointed out earlier, it's difficult to find truth without often 
challenging the the uh, existing uh, concept or ideas of where truth really lies. And your Otherwise, Earth is nothing to do. Yeah. Your, your Earth is round idea is just to put it in a sentence for our audience if they're not already familiar with your work. You've got a lot of great talks out there and people can check you out on YouTube and stuff. But the basic idea, if I can try to paraphrase it, is that water it sort of forms these composite structures which can be treated as objects inside of biological systems. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, uh, How would you put I it? New, I, well, I have no respect for canine creatures. <laughs> <laughs> that's the second time we've gotten dogs in like two days. <laughs> Closest earth animal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. So water, water is is um, is what we study, and you know, most people think, well, gee, water is such a simple molecule mm. and it's all over and scientists have been studying it for years and years. Everything about water that could be known must already be known. And it's, it's sort so, of a bystander. Yeah, a bystander, or as the biologists like to say, it's like, it's like the uh, bathe, bathing medium, the medium that bathes the more important molecules of life. It's boring. It doesn't do anything. It just sits there. It's and, the ether. Uh, it's the ether of biology. Yeah, you, might, you, might, you might call it, but some people <laughs> think the ether is actually very active. That's um, true. So, it's the passive but, ether of biology. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I think that's an interesting way of of putting it. But but in fact, water does so much. It, it and um, um, it participates uh, in virtually everything that goes on in every one of your cells. So everybody knows that you know our cells are filled with water. We're two thirds water, but not many people realize that um, that. That if you translate that volume uh, fraction two thirds into into the number of water molecules, that is, if you line up all the all the molecules in the cell and you start counting, you know, one, two, three, more than ninety nine out of a hundred would be water molecules. The reason being that they're so small, mm. and to make up that two thirds volume, you need a lot of water molecules. So. Mm. You know, to state, as in biology is often stated, that the water molecules merely are background carriers of the more important molecules of life. It, it's it's really hard to um, to digest that because it says that it says that ninety nine ninety nine out of a hundred of the molecules inside your body, be it human or canine, uh, don't count. Uh, they don't do anything. They just sit there. It's a kind of you know, intellectual arrogance to uh, to say that. Uh, well, that's that's what humans said for a long time about what is it, junk DNA? Oh yeah, junk DNA. Same same sort of thing. Uh, there's no junk in the body. Yeah. Everything is there for a purpose. Everything does something. Uh, so. So you think I, these I, waters I, are sort of doing more than just carrying along other molecules the sort of mo the water molecules themselves are acting as signals as a structuring entity like a, a structured entity well yeah a structured entity that's exactly it structured entity and so so maybe i should just say a few words about the structure mm. because because we think about we think about water as having 
three phases. And, uh, uh, one of them is structure, that's ice. That's the solid phase. And then we have the liquid phase. Uh, and then we have the, the uh, vapor phase. But what we discovered is that there's another phase. Uh, and, and this phase, we, we refer to it by several different names, and I apologize for that. I let, let me just say <laughs> what they are. Yeah. One is the fourth phase. Okay. Uh, another one is uh, exclusion zone water. And we call it exclusion zone water because early on when we discovered it, um, it, it turns out that this kind of water does have a definite structure, just like ice, but not ice, not exactly. And as it forms, it excludes all kinds of, um, of stuff from it. It forms a pure crystal. And in order to form a pure crystal, it's got to get rid of any impurities, just like ice does as it forms. It's very so viscous. It, it's very viscous, right. Uh, it, and, and, uh, and, and it basically, uh, uh, so we call it exclusion zone, or for short, EZ. And that works really great because it's easy to remember. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the problem, though, is it doesn't work in most countries because they don't use the term Z, they use the term Z. Hmm. So you've got EZ water instead of EZ water. And EZ is more difficult to remember. <laughs> EZ is easy to remember. So at any rate, whether we call it EZ or EZ or fourth phase water, it's this uh, water that's different from other water. And it feels, it's not merely a, a laboratory curiosity. It feels every cell in our body. And it's necessary for... Uh, you know, it's difficult to say every reaction that occurs uh, because we haven't examined every reaction that occurs. But this some water. Of the most, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. But some of or many of the most important things that go on in cells, water is intimately involved. Can you say Without more about that? that water, the structure. Sorry? So, in terms of chemistry, I think that's pretty well established. It seems like for Earth scientists, but. This idea that there is another phase of water that's participating in processes, can you sort of, well, just, just to reiterate, this water is sort of occurring at the interface with the cellular material, if I understand correctly. And then my question is like, how does that actually affect different processes within the cells? Like, is sodium-potassium yeah, transport affected the same way that, say, protein transport is? Well, okay, so the, the, your questions are um, a little bit, little bit, little bit different uh, for, from one another, but uh, let, me, let me just say, in, in the essence of, um, uh, of how that water works, is, first, your cell is filled with it, um, secondly, when, when the cell works, you know, cells sometimes are sitting there sort of doing nothing, you know, like lying on the beach in Hawaii or something <laughs> like that. Really? And it's, well, no, not exactly, but, um, <laughs> but they absorb energy that way. Uh, uh, I'll talk about that in a moment. If you ask me, there is a kind of energy that's required and it comes from the environment. Uh, but then, yeah. <clears throat> When a cell is in its so-called resting state, um, the water inside the cell is easy water or uh, fourth phase water. All of and it then, or just at the interfaces? 
No, it's all over the cell. Hmm. Uh, but I mean, the cell is full of interfaces because you've got a lot of solids inside the cell, and next to each solid is easy water. And the solids are so closely packed that essentially all the water uh, is easy water. So then um, a signal comes along. Let's say you're a uh, uh, you could be a nerve cell, a secretory. Let's say you're a muscle cell. You're not contracting. You're sitting there, and the water is easy water. Uh, and then the signal comes along and says, oh, time to contract because you're a frog, and there's a fly, and you want to catch the fly. And in order to catch the fly, you got to move. And in order to move, your muscle needs to be activated. So it gets activated. And the first thing that happens is that the water undergoes a transition from uh, easy water, um, also it's called structured water by many, uh, easy water into ordinary water. Um, uh, and the ordinary water <coughs> then is the, the proteins that actually do the work um, uh, are, are sitting next to the water because each protein is surrounded by easy water. And uh, what happens is as the water undergoes the transition, so does the protein. And the protein goes from one state, a uh, so-called extended state, into another state, so-called uh, contracted state. How's that, that signal transduced? Uh, well, it's, it's not exactly transduced. It's a, it's a so-called phase transition. And the phase transition involves the fluid, the liquid, the water, and involves the solid, the protein. And both of them together undergo this, this transition. But is it sort is of like ice skating? Like there's pressure exerted on the ice? Or I guess this isn't technically ice, but it's a sort of solid-ish form of water? Yeah, I'm trying to understand like what... Like what causes that phase transition? It, it, yeah, exactly. So you have, because uh, we, we have a story of the frog, right? The frog sees the fly and wants yeah, to catch well, the fly. Yeah, it's a... It's a in, in the case of the muscle, it's a trigger of some sort. It, uh, in the case of the muscle, it would be uh, about a nerve uh, is sending a signal uh, to, like electrical? to the muscle. Mm -hmm. It's time to contract. And the first thing that happens is the water begins undergoing a, 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 a change. Like before the calcium is dumped? Uh, well, the calcium is uh, is is less less clear. The, the calcium may be dumped. Um, I guess I'm just trying to understand what causes that change in the water in the first place. Um, yeah, so you have well, structured water around the protein. Protein is in yeah. state A, and yeah. then there is a transition to state B. And the question is, why does the transition occur? What's, What's the driving occurs in you know, in the case of, uh, uh, let's say, a ner nerve ending, uh, which may release, say, acetylcholine or something to um, a signal to, to, uh, to the muscle, that initiates it. And as soon as, as, um, as, as the water uh, begins undergoing this transition, it propagates. It's a natural natural. Uh, a process to propagate, and it propagates quickly, and it propagates throughout the cell. So, Does so the, the cell undergoes this transition of both the water and the protein. But it's and like then, a chemical process initially. Yeah, like the acetylcholine. Like ice in the well, winter on the roads physical, or something. It's a physical chemical uh, process mm. uh, um, that takes place. The chemistry of the water actually is changed. Uh, you know, the due to the neurotransmitters. 
Sorry? Due to the neurotransmitters? It's like there's a... It starts at the neurotransmitter. It, it, it starts with that, but uh, it could be initiated many different ways. And one way is to, to apply calcium if you have an isolated cell, not in the body, but uh, in an uh, experimental chamber that you're, you're looking at. Uh, you can uh, apply a little bit of calcium and that calcium will be the same trigger that the, for example, acetylcholine uh, would be. Gotcha. Many, you can get many agents to trigger it. Even the change of pH uh, could could be a, a, a trigger. I get it. Um, yeah. And so once the trigger occurs, all this occurs regeneratively. Uh, it, it permeates the, the entire cell. And, and so the cell then contracts because it wouldn't do any good if part of a cell contracts, but the rest of the cell doesn't contract because then, you know, you have one part of the cell pulling on another, and that's not what you want. You want the entire cell to undergo this transition to contract, and then it's effective. Makes uh, sense. And so what's, what what's, what's the nature of the structural change in the water? Well, it, the nature is it goes from um, the, the easy water the, or a fourth phase, which I haven't told you about, but let me tell you, uh, to regular water. And then at the end of the contraction, back to the initial state. Hmm. Right? So the, this kind of uh, easy water uh, has a, a, a structure that is entirely different from ordinary liquid water because the water actually undergoes a chemical change, but not so different from ice. Um, so ice has a, a hexagonal kind of motif, and so does easy water. Easy water, if it, it occur, if you have a, just think of a flat surface, and water is is next to that flat surface. Uh, what happens is that uh, the the uh, mo molecules of water that are in contact with that surface undergo the transition, and and. And the transition forms a sheet, a hexagonal sheet. Um, and that sheet, actually, the chemical structure is H3O2. It's no longer H2O. And it has negative charge, typically, by the way. It's not, not neutral. So the first sheet forms. And if you, will, if you were to look at the sheet, you'd see hexagons uh, consisting of or built of hydrogens and oxygens. And then what happens is that the next sheet forms. Uh, and the template for formation is the already existing sheet, and then the next one, and then the next one, and so on. And it can build according to our experiments. So it makes sense that if you disrupted the first layer chemically, that the next one would follow, and so on and so forth. And you'd sort of Probably. lose this integrity throughout the cell. I, I think that's correct. Uh, although, you know, experimentally, uh, approaching um, a single layer or even even a few layers is uh, is, is not so easy because these layers these layers are uh, if you think of a membrane the which is say um, ten nanometers in, in thickness this is uh, let's see thirty times thinner yeah you're operating really on the edge of what can even be observed the water right? is what is the water is like a third of a nanometer or something. Well, a typical molecule is a is a third of a nanometer, uh, rough, roughly. Um, so know, these are really is, little structures, and what it, they're really tiny. Are Nobody's, you using AFM to look at these atomic force microscopy, or how are you? Well, we have long ago, but uh, we we don't use it on a regular basis. We have used uh, uh, microelectrodes, hmm. uh, and 
And these electrodes measure the voltage, electrical potential. Um, and and uh, you need two of them because you're measuring a potential difference. So what we've done in the past is we stuck one in the exclusion zone and another one in the region beyond the exclusion zone. And you get a potential difference on the order of uh, 100 millivolts or something like that, where the EZ is negative. Hmm. Um, so and there's like not, some capacitance effects of this viscosity yeah, you, shift or something? I like to think of it uh, um, uh, rather as a battery rather than a capacitor, but the two are really so closely similar that, you know, one can substitute for the other. So you get a, you get a charge separation. This is the essence really of, of what we're talking about. The EZ yeah. is typically negatively charged and the region beyond the water, inside the water is positively charged. And we measure that several different ways. So, so it stores a lot of energy, basically. The correct. idea is that it can do a lot of work when it's correct. signaled to do so. Totally, yeah. This is a really important aspect. And inside your body, although I'm not sure how you guys, your body <laughs> operate, <laughs> you know, maybe a little different from the rest of us, but... Um, I'll tell you when we get there. Okay, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so... You know, if we have this inside our bodies, it means we have batteries inside our body. And you can think of the batteries maybe doing nothing, or you could think of them as actually storing and delivering energy. And of course, I think the latter. So I think inside our bodies, it's not just the, uh, the usual uh, ways of procuring energy through uh, ATP and such. It's that the water itself stores electrical energy and this electrical energy can be used to drive many processes. Well, this is uh, actually a fascinating detail to be added to the canon, right? Because you have, let's look at proteins. There's this shape change that happens when a protein binds a molecule. Like a spring. Like a spring, yeah. Totally. And, and I've always wondered about what drives that because you look at these proteins and you have this huge glob of stuff and it binds this teeny tiny little thing and yeah. they say that it causes a big swing in the shape and so if there's a layer of this easy water that's holding it in one conformation and then the molecule that comes through that is bound by the protein destabilizes the easy water then you'd have a relaxation event like the one you're talking about, and you'd get a conformational change in the protein. Absolutely, but then you, uh, at the end of the story, you have to drive it back to its initial condition. Well, you remove uh, the chemical, right? The protein lets go of whatever it's holding onto, and then the structure reforms. I can imagine, you know, this basically, the water's always there, right? And if the chemical that comes in destabilizes the layer of the water, and then it leaves because the protein spits it out, well, then the water would reform, right? But you're saying that it's a different chemical formula. Well, well, well I, 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 I'm not so sure it's exactly that way because uh, in order to create order, you need energy. Uh, you see, and, and uh, we were, as we were talking about this process, it starts ordered. The water is ordered and it has this uh, regular structure. And then when... when but it's the ordered by changes, the protein structure, right? Yeah, it's ordered by the sort of hydrophobic, hydrophilic shape of the protein the energy came from elsewhere in the cell to form the proteins in the first place like the well, proteins uh, energy was taken but it was in the formation of the proteins right 
Well, I, I'm not, you might be right, <laughs> I might be wrong, but I, I, I look at it at, at a different way. How do you see it? You know, well, the potential energy is, is there. It comes from order. From the water is ordered, the protein is ordered, and then this order all collapses as as the water undergoes the transition from order to disorder, and the protein also uh, un- undergoes a shape change. But you need to drive it back to where it came you know, to the initial state because this happens not once, but it keeps happening, and that's where the energy comes in. That's where you need energy to separate charge to create order, and then you're back again, and so. Um, so, so, but this is like what ATP is used for. Well, right? it yeah, could be yeah. ATP, but you know, um, uh, not necessarily. So, uh, and I, I go to, uh, I go to Gilbert Ling, uh, someone whose name I haven't mentioned, but he was a pioneer in the idea. Um, the late Gilbert Ling, he's passed mm. at age just less than before a hundred years old, and uh, he did amazing work demonstrating the ordering of water inside the cell. And he looked at ATP and, uh, a little bit, but he refers to a critical paper that I, I need to mention. So many years ago, so a group of scientists said ATP has a special high energy bond. Mm. And that high energy bond is used to power lots of things. A year later, some physical chemists said, no way. You guys made an arithmetic error. Simple mistake. There's no high energy bond. All the bonds are the same. Mm. And Ling talks about this in his his books and his website. I, I hope his website still exists. I'm not sure. GilbertLing.com. He talks about it. Uh, and, and nobody's ever addressed that issue. Well, so. I, I've, I've read lots of papers that have not necessarily addressed that issue openly, but they have started to talk about the fact that there's nothing special about that bond. Well, that might be the case. So this is an open question right now. Yeah. Somebody needs to, to uh, and if, if it's not ATP, as Gilbert Ling argues strenuously, it's got to be something else. And, you know, I'm not suggesting uh, that that something else is necessarily completely the energy that structures or orders the water but i think it 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 could be um you know there are lots of people who get on without eating uh uh, the so-called breatharians and uh and there's good evidence this is real uh it's not a a fiction and so where do they get their energy well i think they it's possible that they get their energy the same way that the water gets its energy and i haven't mentioned it but that is through light yeah, and not not visible light so much, although some of it may come from there, but infrared light. And in the case of infrared light, the wavelength, as you guys are sophisticated, you know, uh, <laughs> beyond a longer wavelength than than a visible light. Um, and the experiments we've we've done show that the energy, the the, the best wavelength or the most the most effective one is about three micrometers into the infrared. So where does this energy come from? Well, the sun, to start with, something like half the energy of the sun that reaches us is in the infrared region. So effectively, it's sunlight that does it. But, you know, sometimes, especially where I live in Seattle, the sun doesn't shine, but we still survive. Mm. Our muscles can still contract. Uh, our nerves can still conduct, our secretory cells can still secrete. And 
what happens is that all the structures around us uh, absorb energy from the sun and then re-radiate. So everything is radiating infrared energy. And uh, you, can, you can demonstrate that easily uh, with a, an infrared camera. Completely dark. You can't see anything. Your cell phone doesn't show, camera doesn't show anything. But you whip out your infrared camera and you get a beautiful image in the dark of everything around you because everything, instead of, instead of radiating ordinary or reflecting ordinary light, radiates uh, infrared light. And, and your camera lens and sensor can, can pick it up. So it's always there, which means that uh, since that's the energy that's required for the buildup of easy water from ordinary water, uh, we got that energy. So, so to summarize, um, infrared energy is absorbed by the water, converts the water into easy water. Uh, and that water has a lot of potential energy, whether it's all the potential energy in our body. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold as to suggest that, but um, uh, we probably get substantial amounts of energy, uh, electrical energy from this water, from this easy water, or you could call it electromechanical energy if you wish. But, but the, source, the source of the energy initially is infrared light. So it's like the water molecules, they get all this buzz from the light that's right. flying around. And then the walls and all the surfaces within the cell sort of tell those charged up molecules where to go, those waters. They're like, go stand over here. And then they just sort of build on top of one another. But there's a chemical well, transition here that is caused by the infrared light? Oh, yeah, to the hydronium? Uh, the or, or uh, not exactly. Uh, the, the energy is supplied by the infrared light, but the surface is what, uh, what counts. The surface of the protein, for example, um, the surface is charged and the water molecules are lying right next to it. And, and uh, with the right charge distribution on the surface, which is characteristic of biological molecules, the water can undergo this transition. It, it, it can't always undergo it. If it's sitting next to the wrong surface, it won't undergo this transition. And the wrong surface would be, for example, hydrophobic surfaces mm. like Teflon, for example, won't do it. But the hydrophilic surfaces, which characterize pretty much most surfaces, they tend to be hydrophilic. Uh, and most of those surfaces will permit or facilitate the transition. So the energy comes from the light, but the catalyst, you might say, is the charges on the surface of the solid. That's fascinating. So the surfaces are sort of the template. They sort yes, of set definitely. up the, chem the chemistry, and then the water's got all this wiggle in it already, and it sort of just does what it's told and, and uses all that, that, that light energy to power its motion. Absolutely. That's exactly how it, uh, it, it works. You guys are really astute. <laughs> That's really work in my laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of work to do on our own. But my real question to take this back to where we started is... Why on earth would that not be an attractive proposal? And if it isn't, why, why is taking on such high-risk projects, is there a way to incentivize these sort of higher-risk ideas when they maybe go outside of what's traditionally understood at the fundamental level? How do you, how do you incentivize grantors to take on risks like that? 
And maybe it has to be outside of the institutions. Is that possible? Well, yeah. So, okay, we've taken a step in that uh, direction uh, outside of the institutions, as you say. It's called it's called the Institute for Venture Science. Hmm. And uh, recognizing the difficulty, we we uh, uh, put together uh, an organization uh, whose mission is it is to do exactly what you guys uh, are are suggesting. We're trying to get money. Uh, we got some, but not enough to fund scientists uh, who is, are proposing to uh, to examine uh, fresh paradigms where where the existing paradigms don't make sense anymore. As we all know, it's hard to do that. It's hard to get the money, but this institute um, will accept proposals, only proposals that, that do this. And the vetting is very serious. We've gone through 200 pre-proposals, yeah. invited 15 proposals for that, and selected five of them for funding. What, what, are, the topics, them, what are the topics that you're looking at? Well, well um, so I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of, of one of them. Um, uh, that that uh, is not yet funded, but uh, is one of them on on the list, and it's a uh, cancer curing proposal. So, as as we all know, um, President Nixon that was it how many <laughs> almost a half century ago declared war on cancer, but the war has not yet been won. Uh, there are some advances, but didn't he also declare war on drugs, or is that somebody else? Was it was it Vietnam? Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> It was uh, a lot of wars that he declared. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not good in the war department. And, yeah, that, that's that's right. Yeah, so we we can have our opinions, but, but, uh, you know, political opinions and, and otherwise, but cancer problem remains. And um, um, my old wife, uh, unfortunately, a year and a half ago passed from ovarian cancer and I'm so sorry. And, you know, many of the uh, many of the of, of the anti-cancer therapies have not changed a whole lot in the past forty or fifty years. So there are some advances, but you know, we haven't solved the problem. Nobody has. Uh, okay, well, uh, this guy has a proposal to solve the problem, and uh, and it's a really interesting proposal. It's completely unconventional, yet he's demonstrated uh, with with uh, mice. Uh, uh, amazing uh, results. So, so I'll just tell you because it's kind of interesting. Uh, um, his proposal, um, well, sorry, his experiments. He 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 uh, collaborates with people who are using a mouse model. This is a very standard model. You inject tumor material. It's a mammary tumor. You inject it in mice, and if you inject it, the tumor grows, and within I think thirty-five days or so. Uh, the mouse dies, and the mouse dies because the tumor grows so big, so big that uh, it presses on all the other organs. It's a hundred percent lethal. Yikes! So what this guy does is um, he collaborates with people using this model, and uh, they're trying uh, drugs and other expedients and seeing how they work. So he takes a cage full of these uh, uh, these mice that have these tumors sticking out. He puts his hands around the cage and he goes through a mental exercise. And uh, his mental exercise is 
uh, thinking through a list of positive thoughts. They're actually images of positive thoughts. So um, uh, he, uh, uh, positive thought might be uh, 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 embracing his pets, like you guys right <laughs> in front, uh, feeling good about it. It might be uh, shaking hands with the king of Sweden when he gets his Nobel Prize. I'm making these up, <laughs> <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And he goes through a list of 20 of these. And each, in each case, it's an image that he has. So he's thinking about the image and, and feeling, feeling good about it, feeling positive. And he runs through and he starts again at the top and he runs through and he runs through and he said it's boring. And his cure rate is practically 100%. And they're really cured. They're, From xenograft uh, tumors? That's amazing. That's incredible. Seems like he'd yeah, be in high I mean, demand at has, clinics worldwide. Has he published well, this? Uh, you know, you might... You might think so, but of course... Uh, can he know, teach it to other people? Yes. Whoa. He can teach it, even to you guys. Has, um, has he published canines this? Canines work just fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, this idea that we're a race of super intelligent canines coming back to Earth. I, I really I appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so, has wait, he published has, this? Yeah, has he published this? Yeah, he's published it. and You could, you could check him... If you like, and yeah, and, um, the, his name, I guess I, I, I don't mind. I got uh, a mole, I have him look at actually. <laughs> <laughs> his name is Bankston, B E N G S T O N, William Bankston. All right, um, we'll put it in the description. And uh, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, um, so, so uh, the problem, of course, is that. The whole pharmaceutical industry, uh, they're not enthusiastic at all. I wouldn't and say... they have a lot of clout. Yeah, that's uh, not really that's a, a conventional... That's not a tr conventional treatment approach. Hard to put no, that in the it's so, In fact, I mean, it's so unconventional that a lot of people would just immediately turn off. But if you read his papers, he does it not only on mice, he does it on, on humans too. But uh, humans, you know, if he has a su success with humans, it's, it's dismissed as... Uh, placebo effect and you know how are you going to argue against that it's not so easy well the placebo is pretty incredible by itself i i didn't hear you the placebo is just that's quite an incredible thing all by itself I mean, it is that's a whole it other is discussion indeed. yeah but but this is uh and i i i just want to mention in in addendum that the mouse in this case is actually cured so that um if you inject the, tum the tumor material again, uh, no cancer develops. It's Whoa. protected. Uh, That's incredible. It. So what's the mechanism the here? Okay. So, you know, and of course, he would like to find out the mechanism of what's going on. Sure. Uh, he, uh, and uh, he, uh, so, so this is just one example. But you said you're, you're, you're funding five proposals. Can you share well, all we're, of them? We're hoping to fund, to begin by funding five proposals uh, or one or two of them. And, sure. But here's a trick. You see, um, uh, we, we know that uh, um, any, any kind of proposal that's out of the mainstream or any scientific endeavor is going to be attacked by the mainstream. Oh, Bankston, he's a crackpot. Don't pay any attention to him. Well, that's basically, like crackpot is like a lethal, it's a lethal word in science. And it's thrown yeah, around just when people kind of don't like the work, I think. Unfortunately, right. And, and how do you defend against it? You say, oh, no, no, you wave a flag. I'm not a crackpot. It doesn't work. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so once the mainstream 
once the mainstream <laughs> that sounds uh, like something a crackpot right would say yeah it it's it uh you know sometimes there's no evidence behind it but merely someone of some significance standing up and saying oh i don't believe that stuff is nonsense and then you're finished but at this institute we defend against that and the way we do it is this we if we fund bankston uh we will fund, assuming the money is available, we will fund up to a dozen groups, independent groups who, who, who are uh, using pretty much the same approach as, as banks and maybe uh, some variant. And, and you know, if, if, if suddenly there are a dozen groups who are reporting success using this method, it becomes difficult to say crackpot anymore because... Um, uh, you know, I mean, what does it take to 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 uh, um, uh, convey truth? Uh, the, you know, repeating in other laboratories is the general standard. And yeah, I mean, it, I think that it requires a pretty intense process of controlled study, right? Double-blind controlled, placebo-controlled studies. Yes. Is yes. is the gold standard, and they have to be carried out in a variety of different laboratories, different universities. Even, I, it's hard. That's what, it's hard for yeah. me to imagine that the crackpot label could be washed away if it wasn't somehow being considered within the institutions themselves, because that's an institutional label. Crackpot. Well, why do you say institutional label? I, I mean, I'm. Uh, professor at the University of Washington, an institution, institutions don't take stands. Uh, no, it's, it's the people within them, right? So if someone is, it's hard to imagine a scientist that isn't associated with an institution like the University of Washington, labeling another scientist as a crackpot. I think what Quinn's saying is it's like a power word. Like the only people calling anybody else crackpots are people who are defending some pretty well-established position in the first place. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah, that's who it comes from. These are the people who are motivated to use the label uh, crackpot. And they're basically, you know, trying to defend their own positions by, by doing that. And they have, you know, the weight of numbers on their side. Yeah. And, and so, so by funding multiple groups we defend against that um, and 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 thereby uh, therefore i really hope we we can be successful we're looking we're looking for people this is privately privately funded because governments don't don't fund operations like this and and we're looking for people who have done well in their lives and who are looking for a really meaningful way uh uh, to to donate some of their money to do doing something meaning meaningful for society, and I can't think of a better way uh, to do this because there's so much that that remains to be discovered that nobody ever even even considered or thought of, and sometimes or almost always uh, new fundamental scientific observations lead to new technologies that nobody could ever have dreamed of. Right. Uh, the best example is um, the transistor. Uh, you know, it was like 60, 70 years ago. Some impurities and semi semiconductors led to um, what we're doing right now. 
who could ever have conceived of something like that uh, many years ago? And it seems like private research institutions kind of were the norm at some point. Like, this is kind of a new idea that the public funds all the research, at least in the last hundred years or something, from what I understand. Yeah, but just think uh, the last hundred years or so, um, um, uh, well, at least the last 50, 60 years ago, but a hundred years ago, uh, there was very little money coming from governments. Uh, funding, if wherever necessary, came either from a benefactor who believed in the scientist, do what you want, I'll give you the money, or uh, a, a wealthy family. See, and, and I like this were, idea of bringing back the patronage system as a mechanism for dealing with wealth inequality. Basically, I like it too. basically yeah. have rich people have an app where you can send them an application for a project. Well, that's the story of the Enlightenment, the first one, anyways. Is it? From what I understand, there was a lot of patrons and in the rational, whatever it was. Well, the Renaissance was basically That's what like I'm thinking a, of. The, the Medici family uh, funding artists, uh, musicians, and what a what a wonderful period that was of contributions. And uh, we're now not in <laughs> in a period like that. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we were? Uh, the science, the arts, together um, would be would be fantastic. So, so we're 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 hopeful that um, uh, we're going to be attracting. Uh, 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 people with some means who would like to support this kind of endeavor. It's not cheap, unfortunately. We're not talking about, you know, a few hundred bucks here or there. Uh, uh, a typical scientific uh, uh, endeavor or project uh, per year uh, could easily involve a couple of hundred thousand dollars, easily. Sure. You know, and, and typically these scientists need multiple years. It can't be done in one year. It takes maybe three years or five years. Um, and so, so we need uh, appreciable funding, and and we're we're looking. And by the way, if anybody has interest, just contact me, and uh, or our website is um, ivscience.org. IV is an intravenous or institute for venture. ivscience.org. It's all there, and um, uh, and and I'm you know freely available to uh, to discuss stuff like that. It's really necessary. Uh, I mean, something needs to be done to change. And the evidence for that, I'm sorry, I'm ragging on and on. No, go is on. If you ask yourself, how many, how many scientific uh, 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 revolutions have you witnessed in the past 20 or 30 years? Or cultural. Uh, Everything's stuck. Or, or, yeah, or, or cultural. Yeah, how, 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 how many, right? And, and, um, I'm not talking about technological revolution. I'm talking about fundamental scientific, and you might add cultural uh, to that. And it's really hard to identify them. But 100 years ago, when there was no institutional funding, uh, these were occurring at a furious rate. Uh, you know, we have, especially in physics, practically every year something uh, was, was coming out. So uh, we need to restore that one, once more. Totally. That's a beautiful vision. I love that. Well, thank you. Yeah. So we've been, I know you need to run. We would love to talk to you again in the future sometime and get deeper into this and see how your initiatives are going. With I want to hear all the IV proposals. Yeah. I'd like to hear uh, how all that turns out. Oh, okay. Well, we're uh, happy to do so. Um, you know, I, uh, I especially 
especially in, in, enjoy interacting with the canine folks. So. <laughs> we didn't even get to the Breatharians. That'll be next time. Oh. We can talk again another time. Sure. Absolutely. My, my pleasure to be with you guys. I, I love your unique format. <laughs> Thank it's you, great. Dr. Pollock. Thank yeah. you so much. Sure. My pleasure. Take care. Oh, okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.